Aren't you grateful for resurrection? Life, life. And that's what Easter's all about, the life of Jesus. And folks, you know, the gospel says that the same resurrection power that raised our Lord Jesus from the grave, that's the same resurrection power that's working in me and in you as believers. We who were once dead in our trespasses and sins, God has made alive. And we've been given life. And I'm so thankful. In a world that is dying and decaying, in a world where we're constantly confronted with death and disaster on all sides, the message of Easter is that Jesus Christ is alive and that those who trust in him live because he lives, I can indeed face today and tomorrow and hereafter. And so I bless his name. Well, turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of 1 Corinthians in the 15th chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For the last 2,000 years, the one ultimate question for the Christian faith and the one ultimate question for our individual lives is this question. Did Jesus Christ really rise from the dead? Either he did or he did not. And if he did not rise, our faith is nothing more than superstition. If he did not rise, then there would be no need for us to give sacrificially to his cause. There would be no need for us as believers to engage the world with the message of the gospel, which is good news. If he did not rise, there really would be no good news for us to declare. But if Jesus, in fact, did rise from the grave, then the situation is drastically different. If Jesus Christ did rise then that means nothing is more urgent and nothing is more pressing than the proclamation of the gospel message. If Jesus did rise, that means that nothing is more important on earth than the local church. If Jesus did, in fact, rise, then there's something that's supernatural, that's characteristic of our relationships with one another that brings us together as the people of God. If Jesus Christ did rise, then there is hope for every man, woman, boy, and girl. And this is exactly the point that the Apostle Paul makes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is one of the most important passages of Scripture on the resurrection. Last year, I spent several consecutive weeks walking verse by verse through all 58 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first half deals specifically with the resurrection of Jesus, and the second half of the chapter, the Apostle Paul deals with the resurrection of the believer. Christ is the first fruits, which means that there will be resurrection for those who are in Jesus Christ. So Paul is making the case that it's factual, it's not fictional that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is something that has happened in history as a factual event. We're not talking about a fictional event, something that's superstitious or mythological. 
but something that is true and something that is historic beyond comparison. So if you're there, 1 Corinthians 15, let's read beginning with verse 1 just through verse 11. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says as he describes the gospel and the facts surrounding the gospel. He says, now I would remind you, brethren, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you were being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." I want to speak from this thought this morning, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is it fact or is it fiction? Here in this passage, Paul makes the case that in fact, Christ died, was buried, and rose again to life on the third day. You'll notice he even uses this language uh, down in verse 20 where he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So it's very clear here, we're not dealing with superstition, we're not dealing with some made-up, fanciful tale. This is factual history that we're talking about. And all of it is supported by solid evidence. Now, I would imagine that all of us know the value of evidence whenever it comes to proving that a certain thing happened. In criminal cases, evidence has to be presented in order to prove that a crime took place. And those in the legal field will tell you that there are really two lines or two categories of evidence. On one hand, you have what's known as direct evidence, which is eyewitness account, eyewitness testimony, someone who saw a thing happen and can speak to its truthfulness. And then there is another category known as indirect evidence, also referred to as circumstantial evidence. Now, you may find it interesting that most cases are won, not so much on direct evidence, but circumstantial or indirect evidence, which carries the same weight in court. And essentially, anything other than direct eyewitness testimony would be classified as circumstantial evidence, which simply allows a jury to reach a verdict through the use of reason, which examines the facts of a case. Now, often, skeptics will try to dismiss the claim of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ because, according to their rationale, all of the evidence is circumstantial. 
There aren't any eyewitnesses that we can interview or put on the witness stand today for direct evidence. And yet that does not mean that the evidence is not overwhelming because it is when you look at the case. Unless you dismiss it, bear in mind the fact that the record of the New Testament itself is from direct eyewitness testimony. As far as the evidence of the gospel, you'll notice here in these verses that we've read, the Apostle Paul is appealing to eyewitness account, eyewitness testimony, people who saw the risen Jesus after his resurrection. So this morning, that's what I want us to do. I want us to just consider the facts. Uh, let's consider the facts for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's imagine that we were all cold case detectives who've been assigned to the case of the empty tomb and the missing body of Jesus. Where is it that the facts of the case ultimately point? Because it's important that we understand what really happened. Did Jesus die and rise again from the grave? Or is this something that is made up and we're under a delusion this morning, and ultimately what we believe is nothing more than superstition. Well, before we get into the text itself, I think we need to define what we mean when we refer to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What does resurrection mean? Because often people will confuse terms. They'll, they'll think along the lines of resuscitation. There's a difference in resurrection and resuscitation, which by the way, Jesus is not the only one that we read about in Scripture who was raised from the dead. We know that Jesus himself raised people from the dead. But there's a sense in which every person aside from Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead in Scripture were resuscitated. That is, they were brought back to life only to have to die again at some point. I think about Lazarus, John chapter 11. Jesus raised him uh, to life again, but Lazarus had to die again. I've often wondered what it'd be like to be Lazarus. There you are in, in, you know, with the Lord. You've, you've died, and the Lord raises you back and brings you back into this life, and Lazarus has to experience all of that all over again. And could you imagine what it would have been like to sit down with Brother Lazarus and ask him some questions? I bet he had some stories to tell. So there's a difference in resurrection and resuscitation. Uh, another term that people tend to want to confuse with Christianity is this idea of reincarnation. Reincarnation is a belief that's held by Eastern religions like Hinduism and Buddhism, which sees life and history as being cyclical, a series of, of, of cyclical events. We, we live, we die, we come back. Uh, the law of karma, according to Hinduism, says that if you're really good, then you get to come back a little bit higher up on the social ladder. If you're really, really bad, you come back like a Duke fan or something like that, I think, a little bit lower than everybody else. But there's a difference in resurrection, resuscitation, reincarnation, which is not true. Resurrection means that someone who has died returns as the same person in a glorified body, a resurrected body that will never die again. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about the resurrection body of the Lord Jesus. And that's what the Apostle Paul is describing 
here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where he describes for us the facts concerning the death and the resurrection of Jesus and what that means for those of us who were united to him by faith. So for just a few moments, notice some things from the text with me. Uh, first of all, notice the emphasis of the gospel. What is the gospel emphasis according to what the Apostle Paul writes here in this passage? Well, he says in the first couple of verses, he tells these Corinthian believers, I would remind you, brethren, of the gospel that I preach to you. So in no uncertain terms, he's reminding them that it was the gospel. It was good news, the news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and what that means. This was the message that he preached in Corinth. It's the very point that he makes at the beginning of his epistle. Uh, he says, when I came to you, brethren, I didn't proclaim to you the testimony of God according to man's wisdom. He said, I determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's the gospel, the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of man. It's the gospel alone that has the power to save those who believe. And if you've studied 1 Corinthians, you know that Paul had a lot of stuff that he had to deal with in this letter to the Corinthian church. He had to deal with some immaturity and there was a deviation in belief as well as behavior. There was a, a, a subtle drift from this apostolic emphasis, this gospel emphasis. And there were some, evidently in Corinth, who denied the truth of bodily resurrection. They had bought into the philosophy of the day that was true of the Greek-speaking world that saw the body as a prison for the soul. And according to the Greek mind, why would anybody uh, want to come back and, to an embodied existence after physical death? This is why when Paul preaches the gospel in Athens in Acts chapter 17 that he's, he's mocked and he's laughed at when he gets to this issue of the resurrection. Well, the city of Corinth was only, you know, some 45 miles to the west of Athens, and so uh, that same Greek philosophy was characteristic of the city of Corinth, and some of that philosophy evidently had crept into the church and people were confused over this issue, so Paul deals with this issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And here's his logic. His logic is this. If there is no resurrection, then Christ has not been raised. And then if Christ has not been raised, then ultimately we have no hope. He says we're still in our sins. The gospel would be emptied of its power. It would not be a gospel that could save anybody. He said we and the rest of the apostles, we would be found liars deceivers if Christ were not raised. So he's saying here that resurrection is indeed the emphasis of the gospel. And this is the message by which you're being saved. Verse two, if you hold fast to this word, to this message, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is the message that I preached unto you. So that's the emphasis then of the gospel message. Now, notice the second thing. In verses 3 and 4, uh, Paul begins to offer an explanation of the gospel. He begins explaining this message and sort of puts it in its nutshell form. If you want to know what the gospel is, well, look at what Paul says there in verse 3. He says, I delivered unto you as of first importance that which I also received. How that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. 
that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And so our salvation is contingent upon our faith in this fundamental truth that Christ died for our sins. His death was for a purpose. It was not by accident. It was by divine orchestration. This was the plan of God that Jesus Christ would be the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world because his death was a vicarious death. His death was a substitutionary death. He died as one who died in the place of another. He died as our one and only sacrifice and substitute for sins. And Paul says this is in accordance with the Scriptures. All of the Old Testament Scriptures said that this would be the case. And this was the subject of Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, according to Acts chapter 2. This had been the subject of the Apostle Paul's preaching. You can read about that in Acts chapter 13. And both Peter and Paul are clear that the death and the resurrection of the Messiah, this is the emphasis of the Old Testament Scripture. All of it would be in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And then you take that a step further. Jesus himself, no less than seven times in the gospel records, said that he uh, would die, he would be buried, and he would be raised to life again. Now, either he was telling the truth, or if he was a liar, then that means he's a false prophet, which carried a really uh, uh, hefty sentence according to Old Testament law. No, but Jesus frequently mentioned many times in his ministry that he would suffer for sinners, that he would rise from the dead, and folks, he'd be an imposter, an imposter if he did not do what he said he would do. And so this is the point that the Apostle Paul is making here as he's explaining these gospel facts. He's emphasizing the truth of the gospel. Now, let's take just a side road for just a moment. Uh, what are some alternative explanations to the claims of the gospel that have been offered down throughout the centuries? There have been a number of alternative explanations throughout the centuries to try to make sense of what really happened. And if you want to read a little bit more on this subject, you can pick up a book that uh, was by Dr. Norman Geisler, a little paperback book called Reasons for Belief. It's a fantastic little introduction to the field of apologetics, which simply means defending the faith. But he sort of summarizes these alternative explanations and mentions at least three or four of those that have been popularized uh, throughout the years. Uh, Explanation number one, he says that, well, someone else died in Jesus' place. That everybody there uh, was really mistaken that it wasn't Jesus who died, but it was someone else who died in Jesus' place. Islam claims this. Uh, Muslims say that Allah would not have allowed one of his prophets to die in such a shameful way. And so Islam says that it was really Judas Iscariot who was crucified. Now, the thing is, the Quran, this one little verse out of the Quran, it wasn't written until 600 years after the events of the New Testament. And all of that falls apart, especially when you consider the fact that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is at the foot of the cross. The Apostle John, the Lord's best friend, is there with Mary at the foot of the cross. I think they probably would know who was there on the cross in front of them, don't you? And furthermore, if it was somebody else that went to the cross who everybody else thought was Jesus, don't you think that along the Via Dolorosa, he'd have been saying, hey, I'm not the guy. You got the wrong guy. 
So that explanation really doesn't hold water. A second explanation is this. Well, Jesus only fainted on the cross. You know, some have called this the swoon theory. The idea that he passed out on the cross and everybody who was there that day thought that he really had died, including the highly trained Roman soldiers who were professional executioners assigned to the case. And when you consider Roman law, Roman law said that if there had been a failure of a Roman soldier in his duties, then that Roman soldier would have been subject to the same treatment, meaning that that Roman soldier would have been crucified. So the Roman soldiers had every reason to see to it that those who were crucified that day actually died on the cross. A third alternative explanation uh, is, is this explanation. Well, as for the resurrection, the disciples were hallucinating. It was all just hallucination. Well, let me ask you a question. How many of you can remember what you dreamed last night? 95% of us can't even remember what we dreamt in last night's sleep. And you add to the fact, what is it that Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he says that Jesus appeared, in one of those appearances, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, many of whom have fallen asleep, but some are still alive, which means that at the time that Paul wrote these words, you could go interview many of those eyewitnesses and you could ask them what they saw and they would tell you, we saw Jesus. We saw the risen Jesus. It wasn't a hallucination. We saw him. And so there's your direct eyewitness evidence. And then perhaps the most popular explanation throughout the centuries offered by those who would be skeptical is, well, the disciples came by night and stole the body. This was the earliest theory that began to be circulated throughout Jerusalem. But again, look at the facts. Someone wanting to steal Jesus' body would have had to have overcome a group of highly trained professional Roman soldiers who had been assigned to the post. In addition to overcoming those trained killers, they would also have to be able to move the stone from the mouth of the tomb itself, which by all estimates, that stone would have weighed anywhere from one to two tons. The only one who would have motive to do anything like that would be the disciples themselves. But where were the disciples during all of these events? They were cowering in fear in an upper room behind closed doors. They all had abandoned Jesus in his suffering and in his agony in the garden. They were cowering down in fear, thinking that perhaps the same sentence might be carried out upon themselves. And so they were highly disillusioned. Now, one thing everyone there in Jerusalem can tell you, the Jewish leadership can tell you that the tomb was found empty. The Roman soldiers could tell you that the tomb was found empty. The Lord's disciples could tell you that the tomb was found empty. The only thing that differed were the explanation. What was the explanation? The disciples said, we saw Jesus. He's alive and well. He's resurrected from the dead. And it was this message, men and women, that literally turned the city of Jerusalem upside down within weeks of the events themselves. So here you've got the emphasis then of the gospel. You've got the explanation of the gospel. And let's talk about the evidence of the gospel. And that's something that Paul begins to mention here in verse number five. Notice he says, he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. 
and then to the 12. And then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive, though many have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. You know who this is? This is the half-brother of Jesus, someone who did not become a believer until he had an encounter with the risen Jesus himself, went on to become the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, and writes the epistle that we know as James in our New Testament. And then he appeared to all the apostles. And then Paul says, verse 8, last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also unto me. So he uses then, Paul uses this word appeared at least four times there in these verses. And it translates a Greek verb, orao, which literally means to see with the eyes. He's saying, consider the evidence. Weigh out the facts. Consider that these are some men and women who saw the risen Jesus with their own two eyes. And each one of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, each testified that there were men and there were women who personally saw Jesus in his risen body. He bore the nail scars on his hands and feet where the nail prints had been. There was the mark where the spear had pierced his side. It was not as though he had simply recovered in the tomb, as if he had fainted on the cross and recovered in the coolness of the tomb and somehow mustered up the strength himself to remove the grave clothes and somehow mustered up the strength of, of a group of men to be able to move the stone and somehow mustered up the strength in his weakened condition to overcome that detachment of Roman guards who were there and somehow had mustered up the strength to be able to walk through the city streets and find the disciples there in that upper room and appear and, and then convince them that he had a supernatural resurrection. <laughs> no, that doesn't make sense at all, does it? The only explanation is that Jesus Christ is the resurrected Lord of glory. That's the only explanation. And the Gospels mentioned several appearances, at least 10 appearances of the risen Jesus. To Mary Magdalene, John chapter 20. Or to the other women who were at the tomb, Matthew chapter 28. Or to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24. He appears to Peter. He appears to the other apostles. Uh, John 21, he appears to the apostles on the shore of Galilee. Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15 that he appears to more than 500 at one time. On and on and on we could go and present the evidence and weigh through the facts. And perhaps one of the best evidences of the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ is the conversion of Paul himself, which he appeals to there when he says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared even unto me. He says, I'm the least of the apostles, not even worthy to be called an apostle. You want to know why? Because listen, he had made it his mission to destroy the fledgling church. He was the leading antagonist toward Christianity. But how is it that the biggest antagonist and enemy toward the church could suddenly be so changed that he would be the leading advocate for Christianity and the leading apostle of Christianity and take the gospel to the known world, planting churches everywhere he went? What is it? There's only one explanation. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and it was Jesus Christ who personally changed his life. 
just as he had the other disciples who were cowering in fear in the events surrounding the crucifixion. What is it that led them to be bold in their faith? It was an encounter with the risen Jesus. What is it that led them to come out of the upper room? The empowering Spirit of God that had been given to them as a gift from the risen Jesus, thereby empowering them to go into the world and to take this message of the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the news that He is alive, and the news that He will save to the uttermost those who turn from their sin and place their faith and trust in Him. That's the message they took to the whole world. And the first century world was literally turned upside down. And folks, that's the same resurrection power that's at work in my life and in your life if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Which means that we're not getting by on fumes. We're not, we're not getting by on leftovers from centuries gone by. No, there's fresh resurrection power for you and for me because the life of God comes to live within every believer in Jesus. He comes to live within those who by faith trust in him. You want further evidence? Think about how these apostles sealed their testimony with their own blood. How they took the gospel to the world. Many of them were executed. They suffered tremendously for what they knew to be the truth. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul, he was beheaded in Rome. What about Thomas, the skeptic that we read about in John 20, who said, you know what? Unless I see and I'm able to put my finger in the nail prints, I'm not going to believe in the resurrection. Well, guess what happened? He met the risen Jesus. Instead of putting his finger in the nail prints, what Thomas did is he got on his hands and his feet and his knees at Jesus' feet and said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, well, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who will believe having not seen. And Thomas, church history tells us, took the gospel to India where he was run through with spears, preaching the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sir Lionel Luck, who was a famous defense attorney, and the Guinness Book of World Records cites him for having the most successful acquittals, 245 acquittals in a row, murder trials. Listen to what he said about the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. He said, I've spent more than 42 years as a defense trial lawyer appearing in many parts of the world, and I'm still active in practice. I've been fortunate to secure a number of successes in jury trials, and I say unequivocally, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. That's the body of evidence, factual evidence that we've been left with. And yet we also know that we can't reason our way or intellectualize our way into the family of God. There's only one way into the family of God. You've got to be born into the family of God. And that's actually something that Paul mentions here when he talks about the grace of God, which was not in vain in his life. 
having considered all the facts, having listed all of the abundance of evidence, ultimately, here's what Paul says in verse 10. He says, it's by the grace of God that I am what I am. It's only the grace of God in my life that transformed me, that took me from being a persecutor and a blasphemer, someone deserving of death because of the way that I just so mercilessly persecuted the church of God. It was the grace of God that changed me. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. And you know what? That ought to be the testimony and is the testimony of every Christian. How is it that we've come to believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Yes, there's evidence, but all evidence aside, it's solely by the grace of God. Salvation is by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, folks, let me tell you something. This is so practical because it gets to where we live every day. It's this truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that comforts me, isn't it? Doesn't it comfort you? There's not a one of us who at some point in our life have not felt the pain of death. Whether it be the death of someone that we love. Many of you in this room, you've had parents who've died this last year. Or children who've died. Friends and loved ones who've died. And you know what the gospel means? It means that our Lord, he knows every ounce of heartbreak that you've felt. He's felt every hot tear that's come from your eyes, float down your cheeks. Because we have a Savior who's entered into our condition, who knows what it is to suffer. And it's through suffering and it's through his own death that he's destroyed the one who had the power of death, that is the devil which means that the empty tomb is something that brings comfort to me and to you. It's something that assures me, gives me confidence. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That's some assurance right there. Easter comforts me. Easter assures me. And I'll tell you something else Easter ought to do for you and for me as believers. It ought to motivate us. We ought to be like those women who were there. The first eyewitness accounts. First ones to meet the risen Jesus. After such an encounter, what do they do? Well, they got to tell everybody, don't they? If you've met Jesus, you know Jesus, then you ought to be motivated to take the same message to those that you know who are far from God and don't know him. And that's what Easter's all about. Let's stand for prayer this morning. Resurrection, fact or fiction? Aren't you grateful we're dealing with factual and not the fictional? Which means we've got hope. Which means that all of life now has meaning. Were it not for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, none of life would have meaning. And Paul makes that point later on in the chapter. But, in fact, Christ is indeed raised. He is risen. And he's become the first fruits of them which are asleep. Which means I've got something to look forward to as someone who's come to place my faith and trust in Jesus. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Listen, on this Easter Sunday, what have you done 
with the body of evidence? Have you sifted through it personally? Have you come to the point of decision in your own life when it comes to the empty tomb of Jesus Christ? Have you had an encounter with him? Do you know Christ as your Savior in a personal sense? If not, then listen, why not right now? Why not today? Believe that Christ died for your sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised to life on the third day according to the Scriptures. You see, the Bible says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And that's good news for every person. Lord, thank you for the gospel. And Lord, it is such good news. Lord, may it not just be news to us or something that we're so familiar with, Lord, that we lose sight of the monumental importance of what the resurrection of Jesus Christ means for humanity. It's the most important event that's ever happened, which means that every single person has been put in a corner, and every single person has got to come to the point of decision, what am I going to do with the risen Jesus? Either I'm going to refuse him and continue to be the Lord of my own life and fail miserably at it, or I'm going to confess Jesus, believing that he died for my sin, believing that God raised him from the dead, and I'm going to surrender to him as my Lord and my master. And Lord, that's the decision that all of us have been brought to this morning. And so, Father, my prayer for these this morning who are here and those who are watching online, Lord, is that today would be a day of salvation. And I pray it in Jesus' precious name and for his sake. Amen.